The funeral of Thomas Ashe was scheduled for September 30, 1917, at 1.30 Dublin time, a time zone that did not officially exist. The British government had decided in 1916 that the rest of the world was divided into one-hour time zones, and Ireland's insistence on setting its clocks 25 minutes later than Greenwich Mean Time was absurd. The Irish nationalists organizing Ash's funeral insisted on the old time, and so the funeral procession set off at 1.55, according to British clocks. Ash's coffin was draped with the green, white, and gold Irish tricolor, a flag that represented a nation that also did not exist. Before the coffin marched the Irish volunteers, an illegal militia. They wore forbidden uniforms and carried prohibited rifles. Following the coffin were more than a hundred Catholic priests, multiple brass bands and bagpipers, women's auxiliary units, trade union representatives, members of the Gaelic Athletic Association, and elected officials from across the island. It was a remarkably public ritual for a man who had died a convicted criminal. Ash had been serving a two-year sentence for sedition in a British prison. He died after being force-fed on a hunger strike. You might think the authorities would have shut down such a public commemoration of a man who was, according to British thinking, a traitor. But the British stayed out of sight as the procession slowly wound through the city. People crowded along the route, some 40,000 of them, standing shoulder to shoulder along the sidewalks, leaning out of windows and balanced on fence railings. As the coffin passed, all of those watching removed their hats. One observer happened to be standing near a man he knew to be a British military officer. The officer had sensibly dressed in civilian clothes to avoid attention. After the procession passed and the crowd began to move again, the observer heard the British officer say to a companion, Oh yes, we do just the same in India. We always give the natives a free hand with their religious rites. The graveside service had every appearance of a military funeral. A unit of riflers fired three volleys. A bugler played last post. When it was over, the Irish volunteers felt incredible relief. Many of them carried ammunition and field dressings, sure that the British would try to stop them, that they would need to defend themselves, and there would be casualties. But the British stayed away and let the funeral go ahead. As the British officer said, we always give the natives a free hand with their religious rights. This is the year that was, 1919. Welcome to the podcast where we tell the story of history one year at a time. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday, and I'm so glad that you're listening. We're beginning to look at colonies over the next several weeks. We're going to begin with Ireland and India, and then look at Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Ireland and India may seem to have very little in common, but there are some fascinating connections between the situations in the two countries, particularly the way they were viewed by their overlords, the British. The United Kingdom looked on its colonies with a strange mix of arrogance and terror. Many British officials despised the natives of both Ireland and India and treated them with disdain, if not disgust. Yet the British never understood why they, in turn, were so hated. 
The British expected the Irish and the Indians to be grateful for all that Britain had done for them and were genuinely offended that their sacrifices weren't appreciated. Underlying all other emotions was fear. The British could never forget while walking the streets of Delhi or Dublin that they were outnumbered. If the Irish or Indians really wanted, they could wipe out every English man, woman, and child in their lands. This bred a determination to keep a grip on power no matter the cost. Great Britain believed itself a superior nation that deserved the greatest empire in the world. It would not let some upstart nationalists take that away. So let's start with Ireland. And and just FYI, this episode is going to begin before 1919 and end several years after. But 1919 is right there in the middle, and I think it fits with the theme of the show. Anyway, Ireland technically wasn't a colony at all. According to British law, Ireland was as much a part of the United Kingdom as Scotland, Wales, or England, whether the Irish liked it or not. Let's set the stage with a very quick overview of the history of the British in Ireland. I'm simplifying a very complicated situation, but I want to give you at least the big picture. Britain had been trying to secure its hold on Ireland since the 1100s. One highly consequential strategy employed in the 16th and 17th centuries was the creation of plantations. This was a system where the British granted large Irish estates to Protestant settlers from England and Scotland. This created two classes within Ireland. One was the native Catholic population, which identified as Irish. The second was the Protestant population, which identified as British. The Protestants tended to be wealthier than the Catholics, held far more political power, and were favored by the law. They were concentrated in the northeast of the island in the province of Ulster. These two groups battled one another for centuries. The Great Irish Famine, also known as the Irish Potato Famine, exacerbated the situation. The poor Catholic population relied on a diet of potatoes, but the crop failed in 1845, wiped out by a fungus that left the fields rotting and stinking. Nevertheless, the landowning Protestants continued to export vast quantities of food as their tenants starved. It is estimated that one million Irish died and another million immigrated during the worst of the famine between 1845 and 1849. Nationalist leaders called for self-government in Ireland in what became known as the Home Rule Movement. It is likely, if you read a book about the Victorian era, people will be arguing at length and with enormous bitterness about Home Rule. The issue dragged on for decades and into the 20th century. In fact, during the summer of 1914, the British initially paid very little attention to the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand because of turmoil over the Third Home Rule Bill. The bill had sparked particular outrage among Irish Protestants, who were known as Unionists since they wanted to remain united with the United Kingdom. Some Ulster Unionists were so furious, they decided to oppose Home Rule by any means necessary, including force. They created a paramilitary unit called the Ulster Volunteers to defend the Union of Northern Ireland and Britain. In response, Irish nationalists formed their own paramilitary force, the Irish Volunteers, to fight for Home Rule. Both of these militias 
were illegal, but the British turned a blind eye to the activities of the Ulster Volunteers and came down hard on the Irish Volunteers. As usual, in Ireland, there was one law for Protestants and another law for Catholics. Meanwhile, home rule was inching toward compromise through the summer of 1914, with the proposal that Ulster would continue to be governed by England, while the rest of Ireland ruled itself. In effect, Ireland would be partitioned along sectarian lines. However, before the situation could be resolved, the Great War broke out. In a flurry of activity, Parliament passed the Home Rule Bill, but suspended its implementation on the grounds that the country should set aside the divisive issue until after the war. It's no surprise that this failed to satisfy radical Irish nationalists. It's also no surprise that, in reaction, they decided to take advantage of the war to strike at Britain. Irish partisans had a long history of attacking the British while they were distracted with international affairs. So a group of Irish nationalists decided to revolt. Their goal was to seize key locations around Ireland and inspire the entire nation to rise up against British authorities. Now, revolutions cost money. Ammunition isn't free. Irish nationalists had a pretty effective fundraising arm that was particularly active among Irish Americans. But you can always use more money and more guns. So on the principle that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, the Irish sought the support of Germany. The Germans were simply delighted to help. They agreed to supply guns to the rebels in time for an Ireland-wide uprising planned for Easter week, 1916. Things started to go wrong long before that date. Through a series of mishaps too complicated to go into here, the German arms never reached the nationalists. Meanwhile, when less militant members of the Irish volunteers learned of the radicals' plans, they tried to squash the revolt. They recognized that even with German help, the British army far outgunned the Irish and the result would be a slaughter. The days before the uprising were a confused period with conflicting orders going out to partisans, some calling for rebellion and others demanding nationalists stay home. The result was that instead of a coordinated rebellion, the Easter Rising was a limited operation focused on Dublin and a few scattered locations in the countryside. It was impressive all the same. On Monday, April 24th, armed units seized sites in central Dublin, including Dublin City Hall and the General Post Office. They hoisted the Irish tricolor flag and proclaimed the independence of the Irish Republic. I want to introduce a few of the fighters in the Easter Rising because they will be important going forward. The first was James Connolly. 48 years old, Connolly was a dedicated socialist and militant nationalist. He led the battalion that seized the post office and directed military operations there over the course of an increasingly desperate week. The Irish were brave, but they were facing a professional army with basically unlimited reinforcements and supplies. By the second day of the rising, British troops were pouring into Dublin, bringing with them machine guns and heavy artillery. Connolly kept up the morale of his men, even in the face of overwhelming force. One of those under Connolly's command was Michael Collins. Collins was 26, intelligent, charming, and handsome. He fought alongside Connolly in the post office, erecting barricades and setting up firing positions to keep the British at bay. But what could several dozen insurgents do against the full might of the British Army? By Friday, central Dublin was on fire. 
Then Connolly was hit in the ankle by a ricocheting bullet. He spent the night in agonizing pain, but insisted the next morning that he be moved to a bed in the main hall of the post office where he could direct his troops. Another fighter in the Easter Rising was Amon de Valera, a tall, thin man with a beaky nose. De Valera had been born in the United States to an Irish mother and Spanish father. He was raised in Ireland by his grandmother. De Valera commanded units tasked with covering the southeastern approaches to Dublin. His position came under shell fire late in the week, and his men were isolated, sleep-deprived, and increasingly desperate. One soldier seems to have lost his mind under the strain. He shot one of his comrades and had to be knocked unconscious before he did more harm. Even De Valera seems to have cracked a bit. Later, his men reported him giving contradictory and even impossible orders during the fighting. Finally, on Saturday, the rebels had to acknowledge their position was unsustainable. They surrendered. Connolly, Collins, and De Valera were all arrested, and Connolly finally received medical aid. When it was all over, central Dublin was in ruins. 260 civilians had been killed, along with 126 British forces and 82 Irish rebels. The British were furious. This was treason during wartime, and the Irish rebels would pay. Nearly 3,500 men and 80 women were arrested and martial law was imposed. The British military began holding a series of courts martial for the rebel organizers within days. These trials were held in secret and without any defense permitted for the accused. Ninety men were sentenced to death by firing squad, among them Connolly and De Valera. Collins would likely have faced the same fate, but by mistake, he was sent with low-ranking insurgents to an internment camp in Wales. One rebel after another was woken at dawn and marched out to the prison yard to face the firing squad. For 10 days, the executions went on, and over those 10 days, public opinion made a dramatic shift. The Irish people, who had been doubtful about the uprising, grew increasingly hostile to the British and sympathetic to the rebels. The Irish were moved by the heartbreaking stories of families meeting with their condemned husbands and fathers for the last time. They were watching the creation of martyrs in real time. The story of Connolly's final reunion with his family was one of the most moving. His wife and daughters had been woken at one in the morning and rushed to the prison to say their goodbyes. Connolly was in terrible pain, but he told his sobbing wife, Wasn't it a full life, Lily? And isn't this a good end? Ultimately, Connolly couldn't stand for his own execution and had to be shot sitting in a chair. Doctors later said he likely would have died in any case within a few days. Connolly's execution on May 12th was the last. Public resentment had grown to the point that the British had little choice but to commute the remaining death sentences. De Valera and Thomas Ashe, whose funeral I described at the beginning of the episode, were among those who escaped execution. The Rising shifted public sentiment in another way as well. Before the Rising, Irish nationalists had called for home rule, limited self-government that would leave Ireland part of the United Kingdom. The Easter Rising changed all of that. Home rule was no longer enough. Now the Irish wanted independence, freedom, a republic. Henceforth, nationalists would be known as republicans. 
Meanwhile, the 16 executed men became martyrs to the cause. At the start of the uprising, the Catholic population had viewed the rebels as radicals who foolishly risked the lives of civilians. But by mid-May, they were heroes. Later the same year, William Butler Yeats wrote a poem titled Easter 1916, in which he commemorated the fallen and noted how they had been transformed into transcendent figures. All is changed, changed utterly, Yeats wrote. A terrible beauty is born. In the aftermath of the Easter Rising, Collins and De Valera were among the Irish Republicans who decided in the future not to attempt large military insurrections, which would inevitably be crushed by the British Army. They made this decision while in British prisons, especially at that internment camp in Wales where Collins served time. It was really not the smartest decision of the British to put a whole group of its enemies together with a lot of time to plan and organize. Collins had only been a foot soldier at the start of the Easter Rising. By the time he was released from the camp in December 1916 as part of a general amnesty, he was one of the most important leaders of the Irish Republicans. So was Thomas Ashe. Collins and Ashe were friends, and in August 1917, they both gave speeches at a Republican event in County Longford. The British decided these speeches were seditious and decided to arrest them both. Collins evaded capture, but they caught Ashe in Dublin. He was promptly tried, convicted, and sentenced to two years' hard labor. The British considered Ashe an ordinary criminal, but he demanded to be granted the status of a prisoner of war. After being repeatedly refused, Ashe went on hunger strike on September 20th. On the 25th, British prison officials subjected him to forcible feeding. Apparently something went horribly wrong, and Ashe died a few hours later. Ireland had another martyr. Enough was enough. Collins de Valera and other nationalists believe Ireland had enough martyrs. What it needed now were politicians who would build support among the Catholic masses for the Republican cause. Two major crises in 1918 presented opportunities for them to work toward this goal. The first was the conscription crisis. In March 1918, Germany launched its massive spring offensive, and soldiers were desperately needed. We talked about this last week. You'll recall that the flu struck in its first phase, and many soldiers were too ill to fight. English politicians proposed extending the military draft into Ireland. Conscription was in force in England, Scotland, and Wales, and it seemed only fair that the Irish should fight as well. It did not seem fair to the Irish. The Irish Volunteers and the Republican political party Sinn Féin organized resistance to conscription, including a general strike on April 23, 1918. The British finally had to give up, but in angry reaction, they cracked down on Republican activities by arresting Sinn Féin members, banning public meetings, and censoring the press. Among those arrested was Amon de Valera, now the leader of Sinn Féin. But de Valera's arrest and all of the other crackdowns failed to discredit the party and, in fact, raised its profile. Sinn Féin emerged from relative obscurity to become the dominant political force in Ireland by mid-1918. The second crisis that struck Ireland was the influenza epidemic. You'll recall from Episode 8 that the flu hit hard in Ireland and that the official response of the British government was particularly inept. Into the gap stepped Sinn Féin and Cumann Naman, a women's Republican organization. 
Kumanamon provided critical medical aid during the outbreak and earned the gratitude of many Irish. By the time the war ended in November, the Republicans had gained enormous support. Sinn Féin translated this support into votes in the first post-war parliamentary election on December 14th. This was a landmark election for all of Britain. New laws extended voting rights to all males over 21 and all women over 30. I'm not sure why 20-something men were considered capable of rational political judgment and 20-something women were not, but there it is. The Irish electorate nearly tripled from 700,000 to 1.9 million. A good proportion of those new voters cast their ballots for the Republican cause, and Sinn Féin won 73 of 105 parliamentary seats. Unfortunately, 34 of the new Irish representatives couldn't immediately begin their new jobs as they were stuck in British prisons, among them De Valera. No matter, Sinn Féin believed they had a mandate to create a new Republic of Ireland. So instead of heading to London to serve in the British Parliament, they established their own representative body in Dublin. The first meeting of Dáil Éireann, the Assembly of Ireland, opened January 21, 1919. The Dáil went right to work, organizing an Irish government that would operate parallel to the existing British state. They declared the Irish volunteers their official military force, renaming them the Irish Republican Army, or IRA. They created law courts, appointed trade consuls, and established a forestry service, all of these actions illegal in British eyes. That did not stop the Ministry of Home Affairs, Arthur Griffith, from planting a ceremonial tree on Arbor Day, 1919. Michael Collins was appointed Minister for Finance. If the Irish shadow government was going to be effective, it needed funds. Collins organized a completely illegal bond issue that raised almost 400,000 pounds, 25,000 of which was in gold. A great deal of time and energy went into hiding this money in various accounts around Ireland, since the British would have seized the money if they could have found it. Collins decided he would be responsible for the gold reserves himself and stash the treasure under the floor of his house. De Valera was supposed to be heading Dal Aaron as its president, but he was finding it difficult what with being stuck in a prison in England. So Collins and some colleagues slipped over to Lincoln to arrange De Valera's escape. The entire story is bonkers, and I've put a link to the show notes so you can read the whole thing. The conspirators literally baked a key in a cake and delivered the cake to De Valera in prison. I had no idea that baking a key in a cake ever actually worked. It's the sort of thing you see in old sitcoms. But early the morning of February 3rd, Dave Valera and two companions used their contraband key to sneak into the exercise yard and out of a gate to the street where Collins was waiting. The British were furious when Dave Valera showed up in Dublin, leading meetings of Dahl Aaron. One of the major goals of the Dáil was to achieve international recognition for Ireland. This brings us back to the Paris Peace Conference, which we cannot seem to escape in this podcast. Brace yourselves, I'm going to talk about the 14 points again. 
It seemed only logical to the Irish that self-determination applied to them as much as to the Poles and the Czechs. Sinn Féin leaflets proclaimed Poland free, an object lesson for Ireland, and the Czechoslovaks are demanding independence. No one is quite sure who the Czechoslovaks are, but the whole world knows who the Irish are. That's deeply unfair to the Czechoslovaks, but was in fact true of most delegates to the Paris Peace Conference. The idea of extending self-determination to the Irish did not seem logical to the British, who resented any attempts to mention Ireland in the same breath as Poland or Czechoslovakia. Ireland was not allowed delegates at the conference. When representatives of Dal Éireann showed up anyway, they were ignored. British Prime Minister Lloyd George made it clear to his fellow world leaders that any discussion of Ireland was off the table. But the British had a hard time defending their position in Ireland to the rest of the world because Ireland challenged the entire British argument for colonization. The British mission was to carry civilization to the uncivilized and culture to the barbarian. What was not stated but always clear was that all of these uncivilized people were not white. The whole colonial enterprise was based on the assumption that white people were cultured, but people of color were barbarians. What then about the Irish? Well, you could try to classify them as not really white. For example, British politician Boner Law, who served as prime minister from 1922 to 23, asserted that the, quote, Irish were an inferior race. The overheard line from the Thomas Ashe funeral points to the British view of the otherness of the Irish. We always give the natives a free hand with their religious rights, the British officer had said, exposing a mindset that equated the Irish with the native tribes of India and Africa. To the British ruling class in 1919, Irish Catholics and Indian Hindus, for example, were equally alien. Many Irish recognized that they shared a great deal with other British colonies. De Valera, for example, gave a speech in early 1920 in which he swore allegiance between the Irish and the people of India and Egypt, two English colonies fighting for independence. But not all Irish were so free of prejudice. Many instead took a stab at what they perceived as the weakness of the British argument. One Irish Republican described the Irish as the only white nationality in the world denied self-determination as, quote, the last unliberated white community on the face of the globe. Another declared that the world should not allow, quote, the people of Ireland to be the only white people in Europe or in the world condemned to slavery. It says a lot about 1919 that many at the peace conference found this persuasive. The world began paying more attention to the Irish. The United States was the most alert to Irish demands, not surprisingly since millions of Americans were descended from Irish immigrants. Irish Americans had urged Wilson to advocate for Ireland when he headed to the peace conference, and when Ireland wasn't even discussed, they were furious. Irish Republicans were eager to feed this frustration. De Valera believed American support was so essential that one of his very first acts as president was to board a ship for the United States in June 1919. He embarked on a year-and-a-half-long visit in which he promoted the Irish cause and raised $5.5 million. The early months of De Valera's trip to the U.S. coincided with the League of Nations debate. 
De Valera and the Irish Republicans were deeply opposed to the League because they believed it would be dominated by the English and would never give the Irish a fair hearing. So De Valera rallied opposition to the League everywhere he went. As a result, Irish Americans peppered Woodrow Wilson with angry questions about Ireland at every stop on his tour to promote the League in the fall of 1919. The Irish issue was yet another reason the League of Nations was defeated in the United States. In De Valera's absence, Collins effectively took on the role of president as well as finance minister, while simultaneously establishing the Irish Republican Army, or IRA, as the military arm of the doll. The original manifestation of the IRA was the successor of the Irish Volunteers, the paramilitary force that had led the Easter Rising. To be clear, the IRA that fought to end British rule in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, frequently using guerrilla tactics and employing terrorism, was a different organization technically known as the Provisional IRA, although of course the name was a throwback to the original force. Anyway, Collins, who seems to have been tireless, organized the IRA as an effective military force and became its head of intelligence. He created a network of spies and informants that kept him in the loop on British plans. Collins was not opposed to the use of force. He just wanted to use it selectively. The British could easily crush any large-scale operation like the Easter Rising. They would be harder-pressed to combat guerrilla warfare. So he built the IRA to be the kind of fast-moving, unorthodox force that can succeed in asymmetrical warfare. The IRA began targeting the constables of the RIC. The Royal Irish Constabulary, or RIC, was the police force of Ireland. RIC constables mostly made sure the pubs closed on time. They hunted down stolen cattle and broke up cockfights. Most constables were Irish natives, and many were Catholic, but they were the most conspicuous representatives of British rule in Ireland. Republicans considered them an alien-occupying force, and the IRA began systematically ambushing and killing them. Ultimately, 513 constables were killed, and 682 were wounded. British officials were furious. The Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Sir John French, denounced Sinn Féin as a club for the murder of policemen. It was the start of a fatal cycle of attack and counterattack. IRA assaults grew more audacious, and British reactions grew more severe. In September, for example, the IRA ambushed several British soldiers, fatally wounding one. So the British government outlawed Dáil Éireann. In December 1919, the IRA attempted to assassinate Sir John French, the Lord Lieutenant himself, although he got away. So the British placed Dublin under strict curfew. Things were getting out of hand, and the only solution the British could see was to come down hard. Fortunately, they had a ready means at hand to enforce their will, the vast stream of soldiers returning from the war. Sending ex-servicemen to Ireland seemed the perfect solution to multiple problems. Many veterans were struggling to find jobs in an economy dragging through a post-war recession. If they signed up for the newly formed Auxiliary Division of the RIC, they were guaranteed good pay and service close to home. Men joined up in droves. There weren't enough RIC uniforms for the new units, so they often wore dark RIC coats, actually green but so dark as to appear black, over their khaki army uniforms, hence their nicknames, 
the Black and Tans. The Black and Tans first arrived in March 1920. Many were young, working-class Protestants who had spent years on the Western Front. They were hard men with little or no training in police work. It didn't take long for the Irish people to tremble at the sight of them. They set fire to houses and barns. They looted shops. They imposed collective punishments on towns where constables had been killed. For example, on September 20, 1920, the IRA shot and killed an RIC constable in Belbriggan, a town located just north of Dublin. Later that night, truckloads of black and tans pulled into town. By morning, 24 houses, four pubs, two groceries, a newsagent shop, and a local factory had been burned to the ground. Collins contributed to the escalation, creating a unit of hand-picked men known as the Squad. They were assassins, hired and trained to kill British informers. Not everyone in the Irish Republican organization liked the idea of the Squad, and members were told that if they were captured, the IRA and Dahl would disavow their activities. It's straight out of Mission Impossible. The British tried to counter the threat by bringing dozens of spies into Ireland, but the whole operation was really badly planned and executed. Men with English accents wearing English clothes would suddenly show up in Dublin and start asking pointed questions. They weren't exactly blending in. The Irish spotted them immediately. The squad's most audacious operation was a brutal coordinated attack on British intelligence operatives at eight separate addresses in Dublin on the morning of Sunday, November 21st. Squad assassins slipped into boarding houses and hotels and found their targets getting dressed, going downstairs to breakfast, and lying in bed reading the paper. They killed 11 men and wounded five. That afternoon, a football match was scheduled between Dublin and Tipperary, with the proceeds to go to the dependents of IRA men who had been killed or imprisoned. The British were furious at the morning's events and decided the match would be an opportunity to capture men who had been involved in the shootings. Black and Tans and RIC constables rushed the field, surrounded the grounds, and then, for no reason that has ever been adequately explained, opened fire on the crowd. Terrified spectators ran into the pitch, and policemen followed them, shooting their rifles. An armored car fired its machine gun over the heads of the fleeing crowd. It was terrifying and chaotic and deadly. When order was finally restored, 14 civilians were dead or fatally wounded, and dozens were injured. This was Ireland's first Bloody Sunday. It became increasingly difficult for Irish citizens to remain ambivalent to the conflict. The slightest indication of support of the IRA could trigger black and tan reprisals. Similarly, any sympathy for the British could bring down the wrath of the IRA, but the tide was in the favor of the Republicans. The populace was deeply moved by the willingness of Sinn Féin and IRA leaders to sacrifice themselves for the cause. For example, shortly before Bloody Sunday, on October 25, 1920, Terence McSweeney died in a hunger strike in a London prison. McSweeney had been elected Lord Mayor of Cork in March 1920. He was arrested and convicted of sedition. Like Thomas Ashe, McSweeney argued that he should be treated as a political prisoner rather than a common criminal and began his hunger strike in protest. The story of McSweeney's slow martyrdom was horrifying. 
He refused food for 74 days, and his final decline was a nightmare of screaming delirium. People respected McSweeney's dedication and sacrifice, just as they had respected James Connolly and Thomas Ashe. The entire world followed McSweeney's last days, and his death prompted protests around the world. For example, on October 31st, 35,000 Americans packed the polo grounds in New York to express their grief at McSweeney's death. Another 20,000 were turned away. Amon de Valera, still raising money in the United States, was the star speaker. He described McSweeney as a hero martyr and demanded President Wilson recognize the independence of Ireland. In fact, by late 1920, American diplomats were asking pointed questions about British policy toward Ireland. Winston Churchill, a passionate believer in British imperialism, who once suggested using RAF bombers to attack the IRA from the air, had become so alarmed about negative press that he advised the cabinet that the war with Ireland was, quote, poisoning our relations with the United States. By the summer of 1921, neither side could take it anymore. De Valera, who had returned from the United States that winter, agreed to a truce with David Lloyd George, and it went into effect on July 11th. Talks between the two sides lasted all autumn. These were long, complicated arguments. David Lloyd George complained negotiating with the Irish was like trying to pick up mercury with a fork. The British had assumed they would be negotiating with De Valera directly, but instead of going to London himself, De Valera sent several representatives, including Collins. The British were disappointed. They thought De Valera was more likely to be reasonable than the firebrand Collins. Exactly why De Valera made this decision has been widely disputed. Opponents then and now claim that De Valera knew that any deal with the British would involve some sort of compromise, and De Valera didn't want the inevitable blame to fall on him. Supporters argue that De Valera was operating out of deep moral conviction that any concessions to the British would be intolerable. Collins also worried that compromise would be seen as hardliners as treachery and feared that De Valera was setting him up to take the fall. The nature of the compromise was clear all along. For one thing, a new Irish state would have to accept the partition of Ireland, with Ulster, the northeastern Protestant province, remaining under direct British control. For another, the British were willing to leave Southern Ireland to govern itself, only if the new country retained some kind of bond with the British Empire by becoming a dominion state. Dominion states were self-governing countries that retained allegiance to the British crown. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa were all then dominion states. This was a non-negotiable point for the British. They feared that if they let Ireland walk away completely, other colonies would do the same. Both of these conditions were considered unacceptable to many in Sinn Féin, but as the talks between Collins and Lloyd George dragged on, Collins began to think maybe the Irish could accept them. He reasoned that once the Irish were in charge of their own affairs, they could begin to roll back Dominion status. In time, they could declare full independence. And perhaps in time, they could find a way to reunite the entire island and free the North from Great Britain. Half a loaf was better than none, and the murders and reprisals and burnings and executions would stop. 
Finally, the British threw down a threat that they would restart the war within three days unless the Irish delegation signed the British treaty. So Collins and his colleagues did on March 31, 1922. Collins said of the treaty, quote, In my opinion, it gives us freedom, not the ultimate freedom that all nations desire and develop to, but the freedom to achieve it. As Collins feared, De Valera and many other Irish nationalists were furious. They rejected the treaty as a betrayal. They claimed they would rather fight on than bow before the English crown. The daughter of the martyred Terence McSweeney declared, Ireland must choose extermination before dishonor. And so as the British sailed away in early spring 1922, civil war broke out across the new Irish Free State. Two military organizations, both made up of former IRA members, battled for control. De Valera and Collins now took opposite sides, with Collins leading the pro-treaty forces and De Valera heeding the anti-treaty party. However, De Valera rapidly lost control over his side of the dispute, sidelined by military men who directed the actual fighting. De Valera's power dwindled, and he spent most of the next two years in hiding. Collins, on the other hand, took an active role in leading the Free State troops, and under his control, the new state gradually gained control of most of the country. By August 1922, he seemed on the verge of victory. And then Collins decided to make a visit to the city of Cork, recently liberated by his troops. As he traveled away from the city through rural county Cork, he was spotted by an anti-treaty sentry who rapidly organized an ambush. The convoy was surprised by anti-treaty troops and a firefight broke out. Collins tried to battle his way out, but he was struck in the head with a bullet. Michael Collins died on August 22, 1922. The war dragged on. The rest of the world was bewildered by the continuing violence. The finer points of the argument were lost on outsiders who couldn't understand why the Irish were still fighting each other, even though they had won their freedom. Eventually, even the Irish public lost patience. Finally, on April 30, 1923, the two sides declared a ceasefire. Between 1,500 and 1,700 Irish had died in the Civil War, a grim total to be added to the roughly 2,000 Irish and British who died in the War of Independence. The Irish were desperate for peace, and within months the rebels had melted back into civilian life. The new government held elections and got down to the dull but important business of road maintenance, customs regulations, and the grating of eggs and butter. De Valera was briefly imprisoned by what had been his own government. He considered leaving politics, but then decided in 1926 to form a new Republican Party called Fianna Fáil, or Warriors of Destiny. By 1932, De Valera was again president of the Executive Council of the Dáil. He began systematically stripping the Irish Constitution of all of its ties to Britain. Ultimately, Collins turned out to be right. Once Ireland was in control of its own destiny, it was able to move away from Great Britain. All mention of the British crown was gradually eliminated, and in 1937, Dominion status ended, and the Irish Free State became the Republic of Ireland. Of course, if you know anything about Ireland in the 20th century, you know Northern Ireland remained a point of contention. Between 1969 and 1998, thousands of Irish died during the Troubles. Today, Ireland is generally at peace, 
although the complications of Brexit have made the immediate future uncertain. De Valera is unusual among the leaders of the Irish Revolution because he died in his own bed at the grand old age of 92. He dominated Irish politics for decades and served several terms as head of state. And yet De Valera, or Dev, as the papers nicknamed him, remained a contentious figure in Ireland, hated by many. In contrast, adulation is poured on the golden boy Michael Collins, who was always and forever young, courageous, and handsome. There is something particularly Irish about a heroic martyr like Collins, as well as Connolly, Ash, and McSweeney. Of course, all revolutions have martyrs, but the role of the sacrificial hero was particularly significant in Irish nationalism. I mentioned the poem that William Butler Yeats composed titled Easter 1916 about the Easter Rising. Yeats personally knew many of the revolutionaries who led the Rising, and his poem is in part a meditation on how they were transformed by their sacrifice from ordinary people that you might see on the street or share a drink with at the club into martyrs. This emphasis on martyrdom has left a long legacy in Ireland, Some cultural critics argue it has trapped Ireland in a cycle of violence that was replayed during the Troubles. Yeats has been criticized for contributing to the elevation of the 1916 rebels into martyrs, but I think Yeats also understood the cost of martyrdom. Here is one of the verses of Easter 1916, read by Liam Neeson. Hearts with one purpose alone through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. The horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud, minute by minute they change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute. A horse hoof slides on the brim and a horse plashes within it. The long-legged moorhens dive, and hens to moorcocks call. Minute by minute they live. The stones in the midst of all. That's all very pretty, but what is he talking about? Yeats writes that hearts with one purpose alone seem enchanted to a stone. Those are the revolutionaries, the heroes, the martyrs, their purpose fixed and unwavering. They are as resolute and as unchanging as a stone. But what happens next? The stone sits in a stream and all around it life goes on. Horses cross the stream, birds fly above it, clouds pass high in the sky. Life is change. It is constant and ever-shifting, But the stone never changes. It sits heavy and fixed, unresponsive to the life around it. It cannot change. It cannot live. The next verse begins, Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice? It may be that Ireland is only now a century after its revolution and civil war, and 20 years after the end of the Troubles, beginning to answer that question. Thank you so much for listening to The Year That Was. Next week, we're going to take a look at India in 1919, and we're going to find many fascinating similarities with Ireland. I hope you join me. 
Thank you to everyone who has subscribed to the podcast. And thanks so much to those who have left reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts. Check out the website at www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com for photos, maps, and links to sources, especially the full reading of Easter 1916 by Liam Neeson. You can find me on Twitter and on Facebook and join us in the Facebook group for additional material, more photos and episode discussions. Just search up the year that was. I hope you have a great week. Thanks again. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is the year that was.